Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Cape Hatteras National Seashore is a wonderful mix of what the national park system offers us. There's the beautiful coastline with more than 70 miles of Atlantic Ocean beach and surf for surfers, surfcasters, and sandcastle builders. There's history, both from the days of pirates and the darkness of World War II, and the wildlife whose habitat is protected by the national seashore that hugs the outer banks of North Carolina. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. I've been fortunate to have visited Cape Hatteras twice, though that's certainly not enough to fully explore and enjoy the National Seashore. Cape Hatteras actually was the very first National Seashore in the United States. It was authorized back in 1937 by Congress, but not formally dedicated until 1958. While most view National Seashores as a summer destination, the National Park Service at Cape Hatteras has been experimenting in recent years with keeping some campgrounds open year-round, and the response has been somewhat surprising. To catch up on life at the National Seashore, we'll be back with Superintendent Dave Halleck after this short break. Interior Federal Credit Union is the official credit union for the Department of the Interior, which includes the National Park Service. Take them with you wherever you go with digital banking and stay connected. Not a Department of Interior employee? Not a problem. Visit their website at interiorfcu.org to learn how to join. Start this weekend. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. That's P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. My first visit to Cape Hatteras National Seashore came quite a few years ago. It was when I was in college and a friend and I drove down from New Jersey in his tiny and cramped Chevy Vega to do some fishing. It was a wonderful trip and the seashore a great destination if you love surf casting. But after that trip, it was quite a few decades, unfortunately, until I was able to return to Cape Hatteras on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. That was back in 2010, when the burning issue of the day was the Park Service's work to craft an off-road vehicle plan that would suit ORV enthusiasts and surfcasters 
who reach their favorite spots by driving on the beaches, and wildlife such as sea turtles, piping plovers, and other shorebird species that rely on the beaches. Since those days, controversy over beach access for the most part has settled down. To find out how life is on the National Seashore these days, we are joined today by Superintendent Dave Halleck. Welcome to The Traveler, Dave. Good morning, Kurt. Thank you for having me. So things um, seem to be running smoothly down there on the seashore. And um, before we get into to that, um, what's it like out there today? Well, it's in the mid-50s, winds blowing, a lot of pine pollen. It's feeling very much like spring. We just came off, actually, a very windy weekend where there was a, some, some rough weather offshore and we had a little bit of highway overwash and erosion. So uh, it, it feels like we're in the groove or ready for the spring breakers to arrive and uh, we're getting geared up for the season. Okay, so I'm, I'm not too envious just yet. I mean, we still do have a, a half foot or so of snow on the yard and uh, uh, piles of three feet around where I was doing some snow shuffling. But um, you got to be excited. I mean, you've, you've made it through the winter and another season is coming, another high season is coming. And as I recall, you had, was it record visitation last year? Yeah, we were very busy last year, Kurt. So at Cape Hatteras National Seashore, in 2020, you know, we experienced the uh, highest level of visitor activity in 17 years. And uh, that's not completely surprising because every year since I've been here, I arrived uh, in December of 2014, we seem to be just a little bit busier. And cumulatively, that, that small increase every year has to a lot. So when I started in 2014, uh, that, that particular year, we ended up with uh, about uh, 2.1 million visits, recreational visits. And in 2020, we had 2. almost 2.65 million visits. So we're looking at a situation where we're having about a half a million more visitors annually than we did about five or six years ago. Uh, additionally, not only was 2020 super busy, but uh, we're starting off to a very busy 2021, our January level of visitation, both at Wright Brothers and the Seashore, were the highest we've ever recorded. So wow. it's busy I here. COVID clearly spurred some level of renewed interest in Cape Hatteras National Seashore. Maybe it's the fact that you can drive from you know, almost the entire East Coast or maybe even the Eastern half of the country within a day. Uh, maybe it's the fact that folks feel comfortable in rental houses with their families and then enjoying the day socially distanced on the beaches. But for whatever reason, uh, we're seeing uh, very busy summers and quite a bit of interest in the seashore. Where are you putting that extra half million people? Is there a, a, a specific area or do they all kind of congregate to the, the usual um, locations? Well, uh, a little bit of of uh, both. Uh, I think actually, as we see more people come, we're starting to see more people go to some of the more remote areas that are rarely visited by uh, the public. So the seashore is about 70 miles long and it also contains uh, Piala National Wildlife Refuge, which adds about another 10 miles. And so in terms of our beaches, which is the primary location where of course everybody wants to be, we're seeing more people spread out into some of our areas that are called vehicle-free areas where you cannot drive uh, and offer a vehicle. Uh, and they're probably going to those locations for the exact purpose that we zone them that way. And that is to be able to experience a, a lower density uh, visit uh, for those seeking solitude, 
and uh, maybe a, a, a lower density visit to the seashore. Yeah. Now, uh, a decade, uh, 12 years ago, as I uh, mentioned in the introduction, there were some rough issues between where ORVs could go because of uh, nesting sea turtles and, and, and piping plovers and other colonial shorebirds. And uh, there was a, a long period, it seemed, you know, looking back as the, the Park Service worked through coming up with an off-road vehicle management plan. And um, I, I kind of caught some flack from... Um, some of the locals for some of the positions that the traveler had taken on it. But but you've worked through all that, and, and things seem to be going pretty smoothly between uh, the wildlife and the, the ORV traffic. Yes, Kurt, I would agree. I think we've finally hit an appropriate balance. Uh, there certainly are stakeholders on both sides of the discussion that might not be entirely happy with where we are today. Uh, but they're able to live with where we are today and we're able to meet the needs of a variety of different visitors and protect our resources. Uh, the park finalized our environmental impact statement on offer vehicle management in 2010. And then we promulgated a rule that essentially legally allowed offer vehicle use in 2012. I was not involved in that. Mike Murray was a superintendent there and, and did some incredible work uh, going from uh, I, I often explain that situation as if you're going from you know zero to sixty and uh, going back down to zero again, uh, or to twenty miles an hour in a matter of seconds. Uh, it, it was a lot of change for the seashore, a lot of change for our staff, a lot of change for local community members, and a lot of change for all of our visitors from around the country. Uh, when I arrived, actually, Congress passed the National Defense Authorization Act. And they require that the seashore essentially recalibrate our plan. And we did that. And I believe we were able to do that in a manner that allowed a little bit more recreational access, uh, but also continued to conserve uh, nesting wildlife and all of our natural resources. So we've been, uh, I guess, in a, in a much better groove uh, since then. And things tend to be going uh, quite well uh, since we recalibrated the plan between 2015 and 2017. How were you able to do that, provide more recreational access? Was it uh, just more uh, so more I'll ramps? Give you a perfect example. Yeah, uh, we, did make, we did implement some more ramps, although actually those ramps were planned back in 2010. It's just that the park had been slow to put them into place. But that is an example that allows us to go by having, if you have an existing off-road vehicle route, if you have two entrances, like having a front door and a back door, it makes it much easier to access parts of that route that otherwise would be totally inaccessible. And uh, another example of how we really increase recreational access is by um, performing an extra step of management when it comes to sea turtle nesting. So imagine an off-road vehicle route somewhere on the seashore that's two miles long. Before we recalibrated our plane, if there was a sea turtle nest a couple hundred yards after you drove onto the beach, once that nest was getting ready to hatch, once it was entering the hatch window, we would have to close the beach from the nest all the way to the ocean so that the hatchlings could come out and make their way to the ocean without being run over by a vehicle or stepped on by a pedestrian. And as you may know, most of those hatching events clearly happen at night. So we would close that area all day long and basically there could be two miles of, of 
uh, access that was cut off completely. Multiply that by three or four ramps and you could easily have 10 miles of beaches that are completely inaccessible. What we did is we are now taking an extra step. We uh, monitor those nests throughout the day. We provide a very narrow driving corridor to get past the nest. And then uh, right before nine o'clock when the route closes, our staff or volunteers rake out all the ruts and then the route gets closed down at night and now the sea turtles can hatch and make their way uh, to the ocean without getting trapped in ruts or during the day uh, or night being run over by off-road vehicles. So it's been a real win-win and it's worked out very well and resulted in almost 10 additional miles being accessible during the summer. Yeah, yeah. And it has been pretty successful from what I can um, see from here, I think in the past uh, 10 or 12 years, there have been two instances of uh, a sea turtle being um, run over. Um, unfortunate, but it, it's not as bad as it possibly could be. Yeah, and I would say, Kurt, that those instances are even not really even related to our plan. Those are things that are happening illegally in the middle of the night. So somebody's entering a closed, that they're driving on the beach when nobody's even supposed to be driving on the beach. And so we'll never be able to prevent every crime from happening. But in terms of the tens of thousands of off-road vehicle users that are using the beach on a daily basis, uh, we're really able to avoid and minimize uh, quite a few impacts. And it's been successful. And at the same time, the, the wildlife seem to be doing quite well. I mean, haven't you seen a, a rise in, in sea turtle nestings and uh, hatches and, and piping plovers? We have, I think what, uh, well, it depends on the species you look at. When it comes to species like piping plover, no. Long-term, we are starting to see more and more that uh, we are on the edge of the range, the natural range for piping plover, and that there may be habitat limitations at the seashore that are driven more by uh, the engineering of our barrier islands over time, uh, that may be driven by predator issues, and other issues related to sea level rise and erosion as well. And that's an important point because we've been broadening the conversation about the health of wildlife species. We've been looking at our success or failures with wildlife reproduction much more holistically. So just like we look at our health, you know, our health is dictated by protecting ourselves, wearing seatbelts when we're driving, but also eating well, good mental health, uh, good family life, exercising. There's so many different factors that translate into human health. It's the same thing when it comes to wildlife. Uh, simply removing off-road vehicles or interfering with nesting is just one of those factors. And so now we believe that we have largely uh, avoided and minimized those human disturbance issues and we're now able to look more into the other factors affecting these species like washover events, predator issues, and overall lack of habitat. Sea turtles have been doing quite well over the last few years. And we find basically that uh, their ups and downs, but their trends in general, essentially uh, follow exactly what's happening all throughout the Southeast United States. So when our numbers go up here, they go up in other areas of North Carolina, they go up in Georgia and South Carolina and even Florida. When they go down, they go down in those areas as well. So it's really nice to know that we are able to remove most of the human impacts on the beaches and now allow those trends to be shaped by other factors. 
Now, getting back to the, the piping plovers for a moment, you mentioned the, the natural engineering of the, the the habitat, so to speak. And there was a study, I don't know if it was two years already. I mean, I can't imagine how quickly the, the days and the months are going by. Um, but a study that um, someone had found a part of the national seashore that seemed to be a uh, a launching point for for migration, plover migrations, and and I think that was in the wake of a hurricane that had um, basically sculpted some prime bird habitat. Yeah, so um, thank you for uh, bringing that up. And this is one of the most exciting things about Cape Hatteras Seashore and its habitat value to me, and that is the role that we play or that this park plays in providing migratory species habitat. And sometimes I think we can do a lot better when it comes to telling the story of migratory species, whether it's uh, mule deer migrations out west or peregrine falcons that are in some cases even flying to other countries as part of their migration. It's really important to understand that what happens in a park is just one piece of the migratory uh, species journey on an annual basis. Um, but that piece is really important at Cape Hatteras Seashore when it comes to the late summer fall migration for the Eastern population of piping plover. And what our friends at Virginia Tech, our partners, our research partners have found is that we can have hundreds and hundreds of piping plover that are using the south portion of Cape Hatteras Seashore, basically the south, the southernmost tip of Ocracoke Island, as a stopover location before continuing south or even going to the Bahamas or the Caribbean. Uh, and you can think of it, you know, sometimes I think about that spot almost like there's a sign on the highway saying, you know, last place for fuel before you, you hit the bridge or the tunnel. Uh, but it's an incredible habitat of mud flats and sand flats. Uh, they're loaded with the invertebrates and other food sources that many of these small uh, birds that use beaches and tidal areas need and it provides that great food source before they make their next uh, flight south. So I believe that our researchers at Virginia Tech found that somewhere around 20% of the piping plover population uh, from the East Coast is actually stopping at that one location on Ocracoke Island. And that really reinforced the need to protect that area as a resting and migratory stopping point for not only piping plover, but many other species that use it as they migrate south. Is my memory right that it was a, uh, a hurricane or another major storm that basically enhanced the habitat that attracted them? You know, it, it could be. I'd, I'd like to talk to our, uh, our partners of Virginia Tech about that. One thing that we do know, however, is following Hurricane Dorian, which was a significant hurricane in regard to the impacts that we saw in Ocracoke Island, that initially we actually lost 65% of that habitat on the south side of Ocracoke Island. We're starting to see it build back over time, uh, but a lot of that core resting uh, and migratory stop, stopover location eroded away during that storm. So, you know, the, the seashore continues to change and there probably will be storms in the future that may be built habitat, uh, but more recently we have observed quite a loss of that habitat following Dorian. Yeah, I was just kind of curious in terms of uh, whether this was a, a, a decades-long stopping ground or it was like, a, hey, look, they put up a new rest stop for us. Yeah, my, my best guess based on speaking with uh, our researchers is, is, and we've known for a while that it was a stopping point. As a matter of fact, 
the architects of that 2010 offer vehicle management plan specifically, uh, which is now 11 years old, specifically designed that south area of Ocracoke to be uh, the interior of it to be closed based on migratory activity to protect those birds. So I don't think it's anything new that species are using that spot, but what's been uh, illuminating is just to see how significant the use is. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you see um, those types of changes with sea turtles or uh, do they always come back to the same nesting spots? Uh, we do see, well, it, the answer to your question is it's, it's complicated and it depends. Uh, we do see a lot of return sea turtle nesting, and that's something that we're able to learn more and more about by uh, looking at genetic studies with our partners from the state. Uh, one of the issues regarding sea turtles is it's there are concerns about the long-term ability, both for shorebirds and sea turtles, to continue to use the beaches at Cape Hatteras Seashore and throughout the world, of course, with sea level rise. Uh, we're seeing incredible rates of erosion throughout the seashore. And we continue to see many sea turtle nests that are inundated during high tides and storms. So I think there's a lot of discussions to be had on what is the future of sea turtle habitat use and uh, you know population management given these reasonably foreseeable impacts that are likely to continue. Uh, especially given that the rate of sea level rise is projected to increase over time. Well, and also with the the, the potency of the, the hurricanes that are um, visiting your shores, I, I seem to recall, and I'm not sure if it was Cape Lookout or Cape Hatteras, this one post-storm picture of a, uh, the, the beach was uh, eroded away and there was this tall cliff face, of, if you will, of, of sand, and there was a, a sea turtle nest, I think. Am I remembering correctly? That's, that's correct. Uh, we, we posted that photograph. That was Cape Hatteras National Seashore. And amazingly, we were able to transplant those eggs and quite a few of them hatched, which was, which was exciting. Uh, but you're right. I mean, not only are we looking at um, uh, global climate change and resulting sea level rise, but we're also uh, managing the potential for an increased frequency and intensity of tropical storms, hurricanes, and nor'easters. And we're continuing to have impacts related to the engineering that's occurred at Cape Hatteras Seashore many, many years ago. Uh, we, we have a highly altered ecosystem here uh, that has been influenced by dune building, maintenance of the highway, uh, dredging over time. So when you put all those three factors together, uh, we, we have quite a few concerns about the future when it comes to wildlife management at the seashore. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get back into that in a minute. We're going to take a short break. We've been talking today with uh, Cape Hatteras National Seashore Superintendent Dave Halleck, and we'll be right back after this uh, break. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, 
conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. So Dave, before the, the break, we were talking about um, sea level rise and more intense storms. You've had some issues with Highway 12 coming down uh, Cape Hatteras. I mean, after all, the, the National Seashore is a, a collection of barrier islands that, um, by their very nature, move around. And um, you get into that built landscape and you have some conflicts from time to time. How, how great of an issue is it with, with Highway 12? Is it, is it an annual issue or is it just uh, every other year? Uh, Kurt, I would say that it's a more than annual issue. It is, at this point, uh, certain times a year, a monthly issue, uh, but, but it's significant. And I'll start by saying that our partners that manage the majority of Highway 12, the North Carolina Department of Transportation, are just incredible in regard to their hard work and their reliability when it comes to trying to safely manage the highway. Um, this is more than just uh, like a snow plowing op operation in an area of the country that receives a lot of snow. Their staff are out working, clearing sand, in some cases, you know, 365 days a year and keeping up with storms and the impacts of, of these um, oceanic events is really a lot of work and we thank them for all of that. But yes, uh, there are times of year and there certainly have been years since I've been superintendent where there have been weeks of time scattered throughout the year in which Highway 12 is being impacted by ocean overwash, sand blowing into the road, and in some cases, highway damage. Uh, following Hurricane Dorian on Ocracoke, the highway was uh, in some uh, state of disrepair or unusable for months. And so this is really a new normal, and it's being caused by the fact that we have incredible rates of erosion adjacent to these highways. And uh, there's just not enough life left in the dunes and the beaches adjacent to the highway to protect the highway during these storms. And so they're becoming harder and harder to protect and transportation is becoming less and less reliable. Uh, with the sea level rising, and by the way, it appears to be rising in the Outer Banks area, according to NOAA, at about five millimeters per year, which might not sound like a lot, but up until today, that's the equivalent of about 1.7 feet over 100 years. Hmm. That makes a difference, having that additional sea level uh, on a daily basis in terms of the chronic erosion that's happening on the beaches. And of course, it's just a little bit of extra water that helps to wash over the dunes, 
and uh, you know damage or impact uh, the barrier island system when there's a storm. Uh, most of the predictions we have is that that rate of sea level rise is going to increase over time. So we're working really closely with the Department of Transportation, Hyde County and Dare County to try to put more sustainable transportation solutions into place. Uh, and the, we don't really have a lot of options. You know, I, I look at our choices as what I call the four B's. You either build back. In other words, you move the highway further from the ocean. You build out. And that's an example of beach nourishment where you build the island out to help protect the beach. You build up, that's the third B, and that would be an elevated causeway or a bridge. And the fourth option is you build a boat and have you recognize that there just simply won't be uh, highway transportation in some sections of uh, the seashore where the highway can't be maintained. And a perfect example is there, of course, is is uh, getting to Ocracoke. Uh, we take a ferry there and we've always taken a ferry there. Although before 1854, you did not take a ferry there because Hatteras Inlet did not exist. So lots of changes over time and uh, we're continuing to work with the state and the county to find uh, the most sustainable solutions uh, for the future. Is one of those bees in the lead as far as preferred uh, option? That's a great question. I don't, there haven't been any decisions made about the right solution for all of these tough locations. We call the tough locations hotspots. Those are places where there's either high erosion rates or there was not a lot of sand to begin with to protect the highway. So the answer is it depends, you know, what is the right solution for each spot? Uh, I, I can't say uh, really that's something we've got to work on with uh, the state, but I know that they have been very progressive when it comes to looking at the more sustainable solutions, which in many times mean building a bridge to go around this area, allow the barrier island to function as naturally as possible and worry less about trying to constantly engineer the system. Uh, instead, engineer something around the ecosystem. Yeah. Now, of course, you know, in terms of building out um, with beach nourishment, um, the National Park Service long has taken the role that uh, nature should be allowed to play its course. Um, would the Park Service get behind a, a beach nourishment proposal? Uh, the Park Service has not only permitted beach nourishment, but we have conducted uh, both at places like Cape Hatteras National Seashore, Cape Lookout National Seashore, Gateway National Recreation Area. Over the decades, we've conducted beach nourishment projects. Uh, interestingly, in 1972 and 1973, we implemented a 1.3 million cubic yard beach nourishment project to pump sand up into the Buxton area uh, to help protect uh, some really vulnerable areas there, including the lighthouse, you know, uh, prior to moving it. Uh, Cape Lookout has implemented some beach nourishment projects to protect their lighthouse. Uh, I believe Jacob Reese Beach at, at uh, Gateway has been nourished. So it's not uncommon to implement these types of projects. The Park Service currently is preparing a sediment management plan, and we anticipate uh, releasing a final environmental impact statement on that uh, in the coming weeks or months. And that plan is meant to proactively set forward a series of conditions and a framework for managing requests for beach nourishment. So for example, Dare County has already articulated that they are likely to request beach nourishment in Buxton and Avon at the seashore in 2022. This plan will develop a framework that 
implements all of these conditions if we choose our preferred alternative that avoid a lot of the undesirable impacts associated with those projects. Yeah, interesting. One of the interesting things um, you did in the past year was you opened up the uh, Ocracoke campground year-round, I think. How, how was that received? We did. You know, it's been great, Kurt. Uh, we opened, actually, in the last couple of years, we've opened up the Oregon Inlet Campground and the Ocracoke Campground during the late fall, winter, and early spring. So they're both open year-round now. Uh, it's worked out great. Uh, the Oregon Inlet Campground has been extremely busy uh, since we've opened it. We attribute a lot of that to the fact that we have put electric and water in about 50 of the campsites there, and that made those sites instantly very, very popular, uh, not only during the summer, but during the fall and winter as well. The Ocracoke Campground has been used throughout this last winter. Uh, it's not being used heavily, but it's being used, and we're able to keep it open through some incredible volunteer support. So we will likely uh, continue to try to provide that experience down there where there's very few people in the campground. It's an extraordinary experience to be on Ocracoke during the winter time and experience the seashore under different lights and different moods and uh, see different things. We're really excited to offer that opportunity. Is there a specific type of uh, seashore visitor who comes down? Or is it the, the surf casters or is it... Uh... Uh, a mix? You know, I I don't know. We haven't surveyed them. Uh, it, the, the fishing tends, the surf fishing tends to uh, tail off in terms of activity uh, in early December, and it really doesn't pick up too much until March. So I, my sense is these are folks that uh, they could be retirees that are just traveling the country and looking for a uh, a low density time to come and visit the seashore, or it could just be folks that are interested in visiting their national seashore um, during the winter time to experience something different. Uh, but we really haven't surveyed them, so I, I don't think we know yet. Yeah. Now, one of the unusual situations for any national park, um, from time to time, these wonderful storms that uh, roll through the uh, the Atlantic spit up some interesting things. And uh, World War II... Uh, ordinance, for instance, that show up on your beaches from time to time. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Uh, we've had lots of uh, unexploded ordinances found on the seashore since I've been here. It's always uh, concerning, and um, there's a lot of excitement in the air when we find these things. We're just really lucky. We have great partners with the Navy, uh, unexploded ordinance uh, a team that have been able to come down and assist us with all of those uh, those findings. Uh, we did have one this last summer. And, you know, on the one hand, I think it's somewhat surprising to the public when we find these things. But when you look at the history of the seashore and even look at our webpage, we call these areas Torpedo Alley. And that's for a reason. There was a lot of activity here and a lot of explosives. So we wouldn't be surprised if we find more. And, you know, our only hope is that if a visitor ever sees something that looks like it could be a bomber or a torpedo to immediately uh, leave the area and uh, call 911 or uh, find a ranger immediately so we can safely respond. Yeah. Um, and, and then also from time to time, um, some more historical parts of the past rise to the surface in, in terms of uh, the, the bones of old ships, for instance. That's correct. We have quite a few shipwrecks at the seashore. Uh, occasionally, we even see uh, uh, fragments of uh, the old foundation of lighthouses or other buildings, uh, for example, in the area of where the original 1870s Cape Hatteras Lighthouse 
was built. So lots of things are are uncovered with erosion and, and storms and uh, you just never know what you're going to find. Um, that, and that actually is a great reminder of the incredible work that we're about to embark on at the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. That lighthouse is about to see a top to bottom a restoration. We're looking at repairing all the masonry. Uh, as we speak, uh, paint is being removed from the inside of the lighthouse. All the exterior paint will be removed. We'll be replacing window pediments. And if you're not familiar uh, with the architectural term pediment, uh, it, it's almost or sometimes referred to as an eyebrow above the top of the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. We'll be putting uh, the original spear point fence back around the lighthouse, repolishing the floors, repairing and recrafting all of the metal window frames and stairs and balcony and the lantern and doing some landscape upgrades as well. So this is an extremely exciting project. It's so important to me as a superintendent because I've often said that I believe the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse has got to be one of the most iconic lighthouses in the world. And I believe that uh, oftentimes if you were to just ask somebody that could be in Los Angeles or uh, in Portland, Maine or in Ohio, close your eyes and imagine the word lighthouse or a lighthouse that probably what is coming to mind is something that looks like the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. So we're really, really excited to have this opportunity. Our internal team is working really hard on, on developing the final plans for the lighthouse restoration. And we hope to be underway with that project over the next year. You know, Dave, I think some of your colleagues at uh, Apostle Islands or Cape Cod National Seashores might disagree with you over what is the um, prototypical lighthouse. Um, but to, to your point, I mean, that's one thing that so fascinates me about national parks is there are so many different aspects of a national park from the natural sciences, the natural history, to the cultural history, to the past that's preserved there. It, it, there's never an end to, to enjoy a national park. There really isn't. Yeah, I completely agree, uh, Kurt, and, and certainly all of those things, whether it's uh, cultural resources, uh, including submerged cultural resources or buried cultural resources, uh, natural resources that are abounding, uh, natural being able to see and preserve natural processes. So that's one that a lot of people don't think about, but this idea of erosion and accretion and reshaping of barrier islands, that process is something that we're protecting, preserving, and interpreting. That in and of itself is amazing. Uh, and then, of course, um, the history, the stories. Uh, we've got it all uh, in the Outer Banks here, and it's a pleasure to provide those opportunities to the public. You really do. Um, I'm surprised that Jimmy Buffett hasn't shown up to, to sing about some of his ocean songs, and you've got the pirate history down Ocracoke and whatnot. You know, and getting back to the lighthouse, I mean, I grew up in New Jersey. Every summer, we'd go down to the, the, the beach for a couple of weeks. And I never really appreciated growing up that each lighthouse has its own signature in how they are painted. That is really fascinating. It is fascinating. And actually, to even just learn about the history of painting an individual lighthouse is, is fascinating. I have really enjoyed being involved in this restoration project because lots of questions are coming up related to you know, what kind of paint was used. And when we did a repair in 1976, what did we repair the metal with? And what is below the surface of the masonry that was repaired in the 80s? And trying to search through our archives and the records and even just talk to folks that worked on these projects 
to understand the history so that we can move forward in a smart fashion has been really enjoyable. Does the um, the Park Service have a, a dedicated branch of uh, maintaining uh, lighthouses, so to speak? I know during the um, the hurricanes uh, back in 2017 that swept through the Caribbean up through Florida, I learned that the Park Service had a dedicated crew of, of uh, people who sawed down trees <laughs> that were in danger of falling. I mean, do you do you have your your, your pocket team of uh, lighthouse restorers? You know, I don't. I don't. I could be wrong. Uh, the, the Park Service is a big organization, and I don't know every nook and cranny of it. Uh, that being said, I don't believe we have a lighthouse keeper team, but we do have the Historic Preservation Training Center which is made up of uh, an incredible group of historic architects and preservationists. And those folks are helping us as part of this project. They're on our project team. They're meeting with us on a weekly basis. They're helping us with condition assessments and they're giving us the best guidance on how to carefully restore the lighthouse. You know, something as simple as removing paint from, from a lighthouse that was built in 1870 You've got to be really careful about that. You don't want to just put a typical paint stripper on it. You don't necessarily want to scrape it with a metal scraper that you might use for modern masonry that might be harder and more durable. Uh, you don't necessarily want to sandblast it. So as a perfect example, we're bringing the best available mines, methods, and technology to the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse Restoration Project. Just a couple months ago, we brought in um, some folks from Virginia Beach that did a pilot test on using dry ice to, to blast the outside of the lighthouse as an environmentally friendly way to remove the paint. It would be called a mildly abrasive blasting media. And of course, the beauty of using dry ice is when you're done, dry ice is simply uh, carbon dioxide. And when you're done, uh, it simply escapes as a gas. It actually sublimes. It goes from a solid to a gas without becoming a liquid first. And so a lot of the cleanup and concerns that are associated with chemical strippers or sandblasting or using other media are gone. And it appeared to be just the right touch, just enough abrasion to remove the paint, but not too much as to damage the masonry. Wow, that, that is incredible. One of the most uh, unusual approaches I ever heard to um, re removing a paint or a, a finish over logs was um, walnut shells. I believe they, they ground up the walnut shells and, and would put them into a, a blaster, so to speak, and uh, that would take off just the outer layer. That's right. And actually, that was discussed for this project, but we, we wanted to take something that was just slightly less abra abrasive than the walnut or pecan shell media, and we decided to try the dry ice and uh, we may end up using it for the final project. C certainly a lot easier to clean up than uh, peanut shells or walnut shells. How long is a, um, the restoration going to work or last? And um, what does it mean in terms of accessing the lighthouse? Yeah, it's going to take time. Uh, currently, we are continuing to collect data related to the lighthouse project and finalize our plans. And we're getting a jump start on the project by removing the paint. Uh, we expect the interior paint project to continue through probably July. If the interior paint is removed by the end of July, we might have a short climbing season at the lighthouse. But uh, if it continues into the fall, there, there would not be any climbing this year. The full restoration project will likely start in, during the winter of 2022, uh, maybe a little bit early. 
And that project will take at least a year. So summer of 22, the lighthouse will probably be off limits for climbing. But that's okay. We've got some great things going. We're going to be installing a webcam at the top of the lighthouse so that visitors can get a feel for what it would be like to climb the lighthouse and see that view. We're developing a virtual lighthouse tour that our interpretation staff will be able to provide. So even though lighthouse climbing itself might be postponed for a couple of summers, we'll have plenty of alternative activities to help the public uh, learn about and experience the ins and outs of the lighthouse. Yeah, it really is a, a fascinating uh, experience to to climb it. Um, I had the, the opportunity back in 2010, and um, the view from the top is just just spectacular. You you mentioned um, your visitation is up, and uh, across the National Park Service, the units that were able to operate uh, last year, um, most of them, if not all of them, did see a an increase in visitation. Um, a lot of new visitors to national parks. Is that uh, an issue you have to deal with there? I mean, you've got some unique situations there with rip currents, um, sharks in the water, and a lot of other things that some people may not be uh, familiar with when they first arrive at Cape Hatteras. Yeah, that's that's correct, Kurt. Uh, what we experienced, although you know these were these are anecdotal observations, we weren't able to collect data on it. Uh, and what we heard from our, our partners in the uh, property management business, these are the realtors that are, are renting the thousands and thousands of homes that are right next to Cape Hatteras National Seashore, is that this summer or last summer, we had new visitors, visitors that may not have ever been to Cape Hatteras National Seashore and the Outer Banks. And many of the realtors have told me that they were able to really confirm that, that theory or that statement by recognizing that these new renters that are now in their system had never rented from them before and likely were were new. So the challenge with uh, new visitors to any national park is of course, just making sure we can educate them uh, about the things to do at the seashore and how to do those things safely and ways to help us avoid and minimize impacts and preserve the parks for future generations. So that was definitely a bit of a challenge this last summer with the highest number of visitors at Cape Hatteras Seashore that we've seen in 17 years. We are anticipating a similarly busy summer for 21, possibly busier. We're hearing from realtors that their bookings are beyond things that they've ever seen for this summer. I had a friend who wanted to come and visit me this summer and he told me he looked on uh, uh, VRBO and Airbnb and it was impossible to rent anything for a week during the summer. So I, I can't uh, verify that, but I've heard similar stories. So it's gonna be really busy and uh, we're gonna do things a little bit differently this summer. We're utilizing technology uh, to try to help us perform some of the functions and do some of the things that we would normally do so that we can have more boots on the ground, more of a presence on the beach to interact with visitors, prevent problems before they occur and stop small problems before they become big problems. So a perfect example of that is our entire offer vehicle permitting program, our entire campground payment and reservation system is all online now. That's the way you uh, pay for and receive information about all of these fee-based uh, opportunities and services. And that has freed up those staff to be outside, to be interacting with visitors, to keep an eye on the parks, 
and to try to help educate, particularly new visitors, on the best way to visit safely and enjoy themselves while minimizing. We also rely very heavily on the local communities, whether they are realtors or even um, wait staff at a restaurant. You know, they might have more of an interaction with a visitor than we have the opportunity to have. So we really do our best to spread the word about uh, requirements at the seashore and the best way to visit. You bring up uh, sharks and water safety. So we, we do occasionally have shark encounters at the seashore. Say having a negative interaction with a shark at the seashore is still a very uh, rare event. Uh, we've had very few of those incidents overall over time. And uh, relatively speaking, swimming is safe when it comes to worrying about sharks. A much bigger concern when it comes to ocean swimming is just being prepared, being aware of rip currents and being aware of the strength of the ocean and prepared. You know, swimming in the ocean is not the same as swimming in um, a lake or maybe swimming in a local pool that you might be used to. And um, we also encounter visitors who might have been, you know, the captain of the swim team 25 years ago in high school but maybe haven't been swimming very much for the last couple of decades. So when you go out to this really high energy surf and don't understand this concept of rip currents, people can get in trouble. Um, so we recommend that folks swim at our lifeguarded beaches. We have four of them. Those lifeguards uh, typically um, engage in dozens of water rescues each summer, even in that small uh, area. We have partners, uh, the Chickamacomico Water Rescue Service and also um, the Hatteras Island Ocean Rescue. They assist us with responding to water rescue incidents and also help to rescue dozens of, of members of the public. So while sharks are something to be aware of, a much bigger concern and a much more important topic is water safety and rip current awareness. We've got a great campaign with Dare County called Love the Beach, Respect the Ocean. And it's about loving the incredible resources in front of you, but respecting that the ocean has a lot of power and that you really need to be educated uh, before entering it and know what the risks are. Well, Dave, you're absolutely right. You you have an incredible resource there in, in so many different aspects. And uh, it's been great visiting with you today. And uh, I just wish that I was uh, a couple thousand miles closer to come down and uh, enjoy the beach this summer. Thanks again for making time for us today. And uh, we'll have to catch up down the road to see how uh, summer operations are going. That sounds great. Kurt, thank you so much for having me today. It's been a pleasure. That's our show for this week. We hope it has you thinking about a national seashore vacation this summer, or maybe next winter. Next week, we'll be talking with Kevin Grange, a paramedic who recently came out with a new book about his work in Yellowstone, Yosemite, and Grand Teton National Parks. Until then, visit nationalparkstraveler.org to catch up on past podcasts or to find some of the latest news from and about the national park system. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. 
This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.